Well, hey, it's so good to be with all of you. If you are new, my name is Josh. Uh, I'm the teaching pastor here at Door of Hope. Uh, if you guys didn't know, Ian uh, and Angie had their baby this week. Beautiful little girl. Um, I wish we had a, man, we should have thought to put a picture uh, because uh, she is just beautiful. And Ian said it's been, um, it's been incredible for him to enter into the world of fatherhood. You know, it's so cool because uh, to, to see the journey um, that Ian has been on from when I first met him and this kind of brash, like strong-willed, handsome, the first time my daughter ever um, heard him teach in the park, she, I said, what'd you think of Ian's teaching? And she goes, I could look at him all day. <laughs> she would be horrified that I just told that story. <laughs> but she was only, I think, 11 or 12. Uh, <laughs> um, but just to see the journey of God's hand on Ian's life and the way that he has brought him through this church for all these years, uh, even times where he was wayward um, to know that I've baptized. I just saw the picture of when I baptized him in the first river baptism. And just to know that he took the majority of the preaching over the summer. It's just a, it's, it's a great privilege and honor to raise up people to see uh, that the work that we do in ministry is, is uh, it means something. Uh, and there's a lot of heartbreak in ministry, um, but there is so much goodness as well. Um, and uh, just grateful for this community. So yeah, be praying for, uh, for Angie. I guess she's doing great, but just pray for quick healing um, and just that they would just enjoy this time. Uh, Ian's got this uh, month off to just enjoy being a dad, or I should say learning to be a dad, learning to change diapers and all of those good things. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm sure they're gonna be just loving every minute of it. Well, we are gonna jump back into our new series that we are doing called Kingdom of Grace. And what we're looking at is essentially the Sermon on the Mount. And what we're trying to do is interpret the Sermon on the Mount through the lens of the gospel. One of the dangerous things that we can do with scripture um, is that we can pull scripture out of its proper context. And we can do that anywhere. The, you can make the Bible basically say anything. It, it isn't held in context. And what I would argue is that the only context that actually matters for the Christian is the context that Jesus Christ is the final word of the Father, that all of the scripture points to him, that it's all a signpost pointing to him, that we're not called to be worshipers of the written word. We're to be called worshipers of the living word, but we need the written word to find our way to him. This is why we're told that all scripture is God-breathed. This is why we hold an incredible reverence for the Bible, because what we know of Jesus, we are found. That's why I don't care what books come out, you know, with some new claim that the, the real Jesus has been discovered, because the primary texts and sources that we have about who Jesus is, is found in the scriptures. Uh, and so I, I think it's very important for us to think in terms of the gospel of grace that Jesus said when he was asked, what must we do to do the work of God? He said, this is what you should do, that you believe this is the work of God, he says in John 6, 29, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now, this raises the question then, what do we do with a text like the Sermon on the Mount, which seems to be built around the ethics of the kingdom of Christ. 
How do we apply these ethics to our lives? And, and is it just a, a, a batch of teachings telling us how to live a better life? Is a better title for the Sermon on the Mount your best life now? I would argue that any attempts to live out the Sermon on the Mount without an understanding of the gospel is a guarantee for your worst life now. Because all the Sermon on the Mount will do is continually remind you of your own inability to keep the standards that, God's de that God demands. Anyone that claims that they can live out the Sermon on the Mount, even in the power of the Spirit, I think is actually pushing beyond what the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is. Now, it's true that the Spirit always fulfills the Sermon on the Mount. The Spirit is always aligned with the ethics of the kingdom because he's God. But the question is, is how often in every given day do we take the reins away from the Holy Spirit and re, uh, resituate ourselves as the Lord of our own lives. This is why Paul says the key to Christian living is not trying to live the Sermon on the Mount. He said the, the key to Christian living is surrendering yourself as living sacrifices every day. Because we've got to die every day to the lie that we are our own gods so that the rightful God, the one who is the fulfillment of the law, the one who does keep his own ethics can live in and through us. But because we live in a world of sin, because our lives are marked by mixture, that will always be a mixed bag. The results will be mixed. I don't care how holy you are, you will never live out the Sermon on the Mount to, Jesus is taking the law and actually making it harder. <laughs> He's like, you heard it said, you should, that if you, that if you commit adultery, you know, you should not commit adultery. Anyone that committed adultery would be, be possible they'd be put to death. He says, I tell you, whoever looks at someone lustfully commits adultery. What's he saying? You're all adulterers. That's what he's saying. You're like, I don't look lustfully. I've learned to not look. You've learned to not have eyeballs then, okay? And you'd figure out how to lust even without eyeballs, you're like, that voice is sexy. I thought that. And then I saw the radio personality that I thought was sexy and I was sorely disappointed. That really is a true statement, a face made for radio. <laughs> I'm not gonna tell you who my radio crush was because then I would be also admitting that I maybe didn't think she was as attractive as I had, as, had hoped. So mean. Lord, forgive me for judging the externals for God only looks at the heart, right? <laughs> That's what we tell ourselves. The Sermon on the Mount, I believe, is meant to bring us back to the first beatitude again and again and again, which is why we began there last week. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that are empty, that come up empty, that say, Lord, I can't, but you can. Blessed are those that cry out, help. Blessed are those that recognize that they need help. And so today, what we're going to look at are the, the, we're gonna continue in the Beatitudes, and really the first four go together, and they sort of speak of kind of the empty-handed reality of the Christian life. And Jesus is trying to help us understand that these qualities which the world frowns upon, which the world ignores, um, which the world does not promote, he says these are the qualities where real joy is found, where real blessing is found. But remember what I said, when it, he says the word blessed, at, at its most basic level, it literally means happy. 
in the Greek, but that's, that's too banal. I mean, in our context, uh, probably a better way of understanding it is just Jesus is essentially saying, I am with the poor in spirit. I am with those who mourn. I am with the meek. I am with those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because every gift that God gives can never be separated from God himself. So these are the verses that we're going to consider. And this is the blessed, blessed are the needy. Verses 4 through 6. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Remember, Jesus is teaching his disciples. He says, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Uh, when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying. And when disciples gather around Jesus, which is you and I, by the end of the teaching, the crowds have gathered around the disciples to hear what they're listening to. This is the beautiful picture of the church as a, as a source of witness to Jesus. And Jesus is saying, this is what my disciples look like. They're people that are poor in spirit. They recognize their need for me. They have left all to follow me. This is what my disciples are like. They are those that weep over the brokenness in themselves and the brokenness in the world around them. And they have found my compassion and they have become conduits of compassion. These are my disciples, those who are meek, or we could say humble, those that recognize who they are in me and live a life that is under the control of the Spirit, strength under control. Blessed are those, my disciples are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. A righteousness that they cannot produce in themselves, but a righteousness that has been given to them by me and myself. The blessing is I am with you, and it is me with you that brings forth the satisfaction and the filling. I love Soren Kierkegaard's Danish philosopher, challenging read, <laughs> said man's supreme perfection is to be in need of God. It's a really powerful statement. It seems paradoxical on its surface. Our supreme perfection is our need for God. And what he's saying is that once you get to that place where you recognize your actual need for God, I cannot without you, you've actually come to the truth of a thing. The truth that grounds us in reality. You see, we live in a, in a culture, in a society that, that is built upon confidence, self-confidence. Nobody wants their children to be insecure kids. I was a really insecure child. Um, I lived in an unsafe home. I, I didn't have a stable household. I moved every single year of grade school. And every single year meant I had to make new friends. And I was, I was small. I was like the last kid to go through puberty. Um, in fact, this sweet little girl last night said to me, those pants are too big for you. I was wearing these exact same pants. Your legs are tiny. You're a tiny baby. That was what she said to me. Now, I know none of that is true. And I think she might have actually meant the exact opposite of what she is saying, but I so appreciate it. Now, when someone calls me tiny, I'm like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. <laughs> what a gift. But when I was little, it was very hurtful. 
that I was like this little, weak, fearful kid who liked dancing and singing, which does not set you up for success in rural America. And I was horribly picked on. And, and, and confidence was something I desperately wanted. But I think there are times where I overcompensated that with my kids. Like, they're going to have a different narrative. And, and all we have ever told them is how much we believe in them. And that's right for you as parents to believe in your children. But we also need to be speaking truth about the difficulty of life. I think sometimes we're so hell-bent on protecting our kids from the woes of the world out there that we don't know how much how many problems we are creating for them when they have the, the absolute slap in the face of how unbelievably difficult existence is. Now, I'm with George McDonald. I don't think that our children should grow up too young. And I think we need to allow our children to be children. He said once, and I think it's a profound statement, and it's so true, nothing is sadder uh, than, a, than a child with an adult's head. And what he meant, I remember specifically being asked to teach at a homeschool group in California, and I went and taught, and there was this really brilliant 13-year-old girl. She was reading at a college level already, of course, because it's, it's proven, like, homeschooling is going to end in better academics. It doesn't take into consideration, often if it's not done right, social norms, uh, but, it, but in her book that she was reading was The Life and Times of George W. Bush. And I was like, I just took that bad boy away from her. I'm nothing against George W. Bush, but no 13-year-old girl should be reading the life and times of George W. Bush. And I gave her George McDonald's fairy tales, complete fairy tales. And I said, be a princess. Go be a princess. <laughs> Confidence is something we want for our kids, but we also want them to understand that they live in a broken world. And one of the things I love about fairy tales is fairy tales, as McDonald said, tells us what a sane person does in a crazy world. He said the realistic novel of today tells us what insane people do in a boring world. I think that's a very profound statement. I think that what we need actually is to come back to that real understanding. It's why Lord of the Rings is such a powerful a powerful series, and I'd say nothing about the new series. I refuse to watch it because Tolkien would never allow his books to be turned into movies. Um, I still reject the movies. I don't care what any of you say. I do not want Elijah Wood to be my Frodo. I reject him as Frodo. I accepted him in many things, but not that. <laughs> I like, what's the other guy's name? Sean, Sean Aston, right? Goonies, yes. Samwise, no. Samwise was tall. That's upsetting. <laughs> I could go, you know what, let's actually put this sermon aside. We'll get to it next week. <laughs> let's talk about all the reasons Lord of the Rings should not have happened as a movie. <laughs> Soft focus scenes where the characters come in the room overwhelmed with emotion that is not normal. You know those scenes? Oh, if you don't. I'm glad that means you're, you're smart and you didn't watch it. There's an Arabic proverb. All sunshine makes a desert. What we need to understand is that the recognition of our life as broken and incomplete without Jesus is the most essential thing that we can help anyone, including our children, understand. That they will always be incomplete. You, if you do not know Jesus, will always be incomplete 
without him. Now, for those of us who have found Jesus, we still recognize that we're incomplete because we live on this side of eternity in the age of grace in which sin is still at play. Even though sin has been dealt with, it's conquered, it's defeated, it's been forgiven, it still is at play and causes problems in our lives. And so we still forget the victory that is actually ours because we're in Christ, because we often look at the world through the lens that the world is providing, including the way that we look at Jesus. And so don't think that if you're not a Christian that, you're, that I'm saying that I have found the key to completeness and I have never been incomplete since I found that key. That's not what I'm saying. I am saying I have found the key to completeness, but I am still learning along with the rest of those who follow Jesus what it means to live in that victory. The victory that's already ours. Satan's great work in the church is to get us to continually believe that we're still not complete with Jesus and we still need more of what the world has to offer. But that's the great lie. Christianity's history has never been anchored in comfort or respite from difficulty. We struggle with this truth because we are uncomfortable with the paradox. The gospel, it comes to us as good news offered to those who trust and follow Jesus with things like joy and peace and love and, oh yeah, a caveat of of heartbreak and and struggling and suffering as well. Remember that sermon I gave before my sabbatical um, called The Bread and the Stone, that Jesus seems to offer the disciples bread and then lobs a stone into it. He says in the sermon, now what, what father would give his child a stone when he asks for a loaf of bread? And you kind of feel like Jesus is sort of doing that in the upper room discourse, because he says, I said these things that you may have peace, but in this world you will have tribulation. And you're like, which one is it, Jesus? And he says, yes, exactly. Because the peace that Jesus offers is not peace from difficulty, it's peace in the middle of it. It's peace in the midst of it. I always say that the freedom that Jesus brings is not freedom from pain, it is the freedom from the need to be free from the pain that we experience because we know that the best is yet to come. Because we know the end of the story. Fernando Pessoa, he's one of my favorite poets, He's Portugal's like national treasure, total weirdo. Um, and that says nothing about Portugal, it just says something about him. I love him. Uh, but he wrote under like 175 heteronyms. If you don't know what a heteronym, a pseudonym is when someone just takes on a fake name. A heteronym is when someone actually creates an author, writes out their entire history, and then writes works from the perspective of that author. That's like next level. That's, I don't maybe possessed even. <laughs> uh, but he wrote a book called The Book of Disquiet under one of his heteronyms, this guy named George. And he said in the book, he says about life, he says, it's as if someone were using my life to beat me with. I don't know why that resonates with me so much. But I really find that encouraging. And once again, I'd like to offer my tattoo services to anyone that, you know, connects with that statement, because it can only get better from there, right? If your life is something that you feel like you are being beaten with. This is the greatest challenge for us with grace, is when we enter into difficulty, what we say is that we need a, a more robust theology of suffering. We don't need a more robust theology of suffering because nobody understands suffering. And any Christian that tries to say they figured out why suffering exists is lying to you. 
There is a mystery involved in suffering. We don't know why the serpent is in the garden. We don't know when the serpent was made. We don't know why it went bad. I mean, there's little hints and pointers, but that's not the purpose of the scripture. The purpose of the scripture is to tell us that there's a God who loves us in spite of the suffering. And yes, suffering is a mystery, but an even greater mystery is God's willingness to enter into that suffering and make it his own. We don't need a more robust theology of suffering. What we need is a more robust theology of Jesus because he is the wounded healer. Because we need a a more robust theology of the cross because the cross confronts us with the worst that humans are capable of, which is we are capable of hurting each other and even taking joy and pleasure in the pain that we can bring to others. And don't think that because you're sitting in a pew today that you are not someone that is above hurting someone. You will be both the victim of someone's hurt and you will be a victimizer, the cause of someone's hurt. And the good news is that Jesus died for both. This is the reality of the needy. What we need is a more robust understanding of sin What we need is a low anthropology, as my friend David Zoll calls it, where, you know, that there's that old Sarah McLaughlin song, and there's a lot of things that hurt my ears, but there's this one song, We're All Born Innocent, and and it's this very, like, idealistic, like, we just got to get back to the innocence that's there. People are, by nature, good. And what we saw in our city the moment we defunded our police department is just how good people are naturally. You know what I started doing? Speeding, because I don't get pulled over anymore. And, and I, I'm just as fundamentally wicked. I, if there's no parameters, I'm gonna, I'm gonna see how far they, there's no parameters. We need parameters. We need actually the one who bears the sword because we are prone to do the things that we ought not to do and the things that we want to do we often find ourselves not doing. This is the reality of the sinful essence of our humanity but that's what makes the good news so beautiful is that when we recognize how needy we are and then we're confronted with a God who is fully comfortable entering into that brokenness and is not surprised by anything that you do wrong Because in his love, he has chosen to pass over the brokenness. And the requirement is that we trust in his work. Here's what I ask of you, that you recognize that you can't save yourself. Here's what I've asked of you, that you quit trying to save yourself and you let me save you. Let me be responsible for you. This is the beauty of the gospel. Man's supreme perfection is to be in need of God. The problem that we have in our world today is that a lot of people don't see their need because we have so much. Johnny Erickson Tata, she's an evangelist. She was paralyzed in a swimming accident. Um, She talks about going to Africa. Um, She is a quadriplegic. And she was on the streets in a very impoverished city in Africa. And a woman who needed a wheelchair, that's what she does. She brings, provides wheelchairs. Uh, and bring, her ministry brings wheelchairs to countries that can't afford them because there's so many people that are paralyzed on the streets in some of these third world countries. And she was asked by the woman who was paralyzed to come into her tent. And so Johnny Erickson thought it, she gets on the ground and she 
pulls herself into the, or she, I think she was like helped into the tent, and the woman said to her, God is so much bigger here than he is where you're from. And she said, why? And then the woman said, because we need him more. The supreme perfection is to be in need of God. And see, the paradox of our suffering in light of the promises of Jesus is it can become, the, the suffering can become the obscurant of grace, but it also can be the necessary mechanism to bring us into greater understanding of grace. That's what suffering has the ability to do. My whole book, I finished it actually back in June, and it does actually come out February 28th, um, Stumbling Toward Eternity, is that whole reality is that if you want to experience Jesus, it is not going to be, it's not going to happen by our attempts to avoid pain. In fact, I would say that we experience him most fully in the deepest moments of pain, in the moments of mourning. Let's consider, blessed are those who mourn briefly, for they will be comforted. This is the beauty of tears. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. One of my favorite books ever written on loss is a book by Nicholas Wolterstorff. He's a Christian philosopher, and he wrote a book called The Lament for His Son after his son died in a climbing accident um, in the Alps. It's a heartbreaking book. It's only like it's small, and it's maybe 80 pages, um, and that's all you could handle because it is the most raw and honest uh, observation of grief, even more, uh, to me, the, the, there's an even greater rawness than um, Lewis's brilliant book, A Grief Observed. Uh, there's just something about Walter Storff's language and the way that he talks about losing a son that is just so powerful. But he says, I shall look at the world through tears. Perhaps I shall see things that dry eyes, with dry eyed I could not see. The dry eyed I could not see. What a powerful statement. He says, don't tell me, Christian, that I should be glad that he's with God. That does nothing for me right now. Don't think that I've lost my hope in a Christian worldview, he says in the book. But that doesn't change the fact that I feel his absence in everything. There is a man who understood grace and actually it was willing to enter into the grief because of the hope that he has in Jesus and actually look at it with his eyes open and not turn away from it. I like what Paul writes here is that play on words is that when we are comforted in our suffering, it actually, it actually allows us to become matured. One of the greatest ways that you are matured as a Christian. It's funny, I always say that suffering, if it's, if it's, if it's dealt with appropriately, can bring greater maturity and faster growth than almost anything, but it also can bring the most stunted growth when we allow it to turn us inward upon ourselves and, and create a kind of stunted life experience. You ever read The Great Divorce by Lewis, and there's a scene where there's a mom who's in purgatory, and an angel is sent to encourage her to come with him to, into, into the heavens, but she's 
still so obsessed with her grief over the loss of her son that she isn't even able to recognize that she turned her son into an idol that actually separated her from God. And now she has another opportunity to repent and leave this world, this, this gray world of purgatory and aloneness and go and be united with God. But all she wants to know is where her son is. And the angel can't help her because she's blinded by her own, her, her own obsession with her grief. Her grief became her new identity. Have you ever been around someone that romances the grief? I, I am a hopeless romantic and I love melancholy things by nature. I just, my favorite band my junior year in high school is The Cure, Disintegration. If you don't know what that is, shame on you, you should. Um, I had a poster of Robert Smith above my bed in all of his sadness with his crazy black hair looking at me in his sadness every day and I'm like, I just wanna be like you. Sad, sad with white makeup and red lipstick for the rest of my life. <laughs> I, I, I had a tendency to romance pain. And I think it's an artistic temperament that we often sort of, we like to sit in the self-pity. I don't know, maybe it's the art by its nature is self-expression. That's why Christian artists are the most tormented people. It's because Christ is, self, is self-denial and I'm like, I want to express but I can't. Um, which also leads to melancholy t- dispositions. Uh, this is why we should all recognize we need help. This is the good news. Uh, but I, I think of that, the, the ways that we can just hold on to the grief, we almost enjoy the pain because at least it makes us feel something. We feel alive in it. But that's not, we're not to be masochists. The goal of the Christian life is not to embrace pain, but it's to embrace Jesus who cares about the fact that we hurt to embrace Jesus, and unfortunately, to embrace Jesus is to actually bring the world's distaste upon us, which causes a different kind of pain. But honestly, for many Christians today, the pain that they are experiencing in their life is not the pain of following hard after Jesus, it's the pain of living half-hearted in their devotion to him. It's the pain of the great sin of denying Jesus before men. And you say, "I, I never deny that I'm a Christian. What do you say that you are? What do you do that shows the world that you are? It's not trying to live the Sermon on the Mount, but it's saying, I, in my brokenness, in my mixture, am a man who is defined by the person of Jesus Christ. I have given him my whole self, which includes my bad parts and my good parts. And the good news is that he loves me and he loves you. Do you believe that in the depth of your being? Because you're not going to tell people that unless you believe that he loves you. But you see, when we live in the pretense that the Christian life is about our behavior modification, behavior modification turns us into a duplicitous people because you will never be able to modify your behavior to the point of any sort of perfection. And that imperfection will become something that you will either honestly confess, but what most Christians do and why churches are shrinking every week right now in America is most Christians have learned the art of presenting to the world an ideal that they themselves cannot keep. And it's why people get hurt. We don't cry enough about our lack of loyalty to Jesus. We don't cry enough for the brokenness in our own lives. 
I know one of the hardest things for me to do was to confront my past. Writing my book almost unhinged me. I don't know if you guys knew, but I got pretty unhealthy last year, and a large part of that was actually was writing a book that's a combination of memoir and theological reflection, because the primary question that I'm posing in Stumbling Toward Eternity is, what does the gospel have to say to our trauma? What, is it, what does it have to say? How do we maintain the picture that God is good in light of the various things that we all go through? And the, you know, the thing that connects us, the universal story of what it means to be human, is, is that we all, we all hurt. It's not all we do. But everybody will be touched by pain. We lose jobs, we lose loved ones, we lose our health. All sorts of things hurt us. And I look around here, I know some of you that have met Jesus because of the pain that you were in. And that's the beauty of the gospel. It's not, it's not God not taking pain seriously, it's, it's a God who takes his love of humanity so seriously that he's willing to repurpose pain to bring about his good. And that is a gift. It's a gift. I think of this amazing poem by Franz Wright, who died of cancer, and in his sickness, he won the Pulitzer Prize for poetry um, for his book, Walking in Martha's Vineyard. I've quoted it many times because I think it's so beautiful, because at the end of his life, once he got terminal cancer, he came back to his faith. Um, and a lot of it's him trying to reconcile this newfound faith and even work out the fact that I'm come back to faith because I know I'm going to die and I don't want to come to God I don't know. And it doesn't really matter. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. I don't care what causes someone to come back to God. I'm just glad he came back and I'm glad that he wrote so honestly about that journey. He says, when I step outside, the ugliness is so shattering. It has become dear to me like a child, precious to me, if only I could tell someone the humiliation I go through when I think of my past, it can only be described as grace. We are created by being destroyed. Man, hey, poetry doesn't get better than that. And that is such a, we are created by being destroyed. We are comforted while we struggle and struggle while we bring comfort. It is the impossible nature of life colliding with the saving goodness of God. I think if we were to look through history of the church, those who've experienced the presence of God most fully were not those who lived in isolation, who tried to protect themselves from the pain of the world, but it was those who entered willingly into it because they had tasted something that was so good they couldn't keep it secret, and that was the love of God. The path of Jesus is a path that is outward and downward, never inward and upward. I think often we turn it into our own personal journey and it's kind of like the stoic event, like this week I'm gonna swear less and I'm gonna, I'm gonna eat more vegetables and I'm gonna work out more. And you mark it off, I have climbed one rung of the ladder of healthy living. How to release your inner bad A, you know, as the New York Times bestseller call, calls it. I did pitch my idea. You're a bad A and you should know it. Um, but the publisher didn't like it. It was too, too edgy. <laughs> it's amazing what is considered edgy in Christian publishing, let me just tell you. I discovered that gypsy is edgy. The word gypsy. I call my wife the gypsy queen, and I was asked that that might offend some people, and I'm like, 
I promise you if that offends them, they will be far offended, more offended by my photograph on the back and will not even buy the book before they reach that phrase. <laughs> and I have nothing to say to someone being offended by the word gypsy. Um, there was many moments where I became very unchristian in my, in my editing process. <laughs> the beauty of tears is that blessed are those that mourn, they'll be comforted. When we are honest about our brokenness, when we come to terms with it, I like to say what Jesus is saying here is, is fourfold. He's not just saying blessed are those who mourn over their sin. It doesn't say that. It doesn't, it's, a, it's a very general statement. Now, it does say poor in spirit, so we can take into consideration that we are physical and we are spiritual beings, and it's not ignoring the physical and is definitely not ignoring the spiritual, and the tendency in the interpretations of the Sermon on the Mount is to go one or the other, and I think Jesus is leaving very broad strokes here. He has a heart for the heartbroken in general. He has a heart for the poor, but the poor in spirit is where his heart most fully rests because it's the poor in spirit that recognizes their need for help. Now, it's often that poverty can lead us to the recognition that we need help. Imprisonment can lead to the recognition that we need help. That's why he comes to set the captives free. That's why he said, I didn't come to bring healing to the, those who are well. You're not, if you're well, you don't need a physician. I've come to bring healing to those that recognize they're sick, that need help. But what he is saying here with the morning, he's saying, I am for those who suffer at its most basic level. He's saying, I am with you when you hurt because of me. Nothing hides the presence of God like the ways that we sin without Christ on our mind. Nothing, nothing hides God's presence like unconfessed sin. We hurt ourselves often in our refusal to come to our father. We're like the prodigal sons. We just, we, we, we're, we're so ashamed of our activity that we go as far from the one that actually can help us as possible. That's just a lie of the devil because the father's arms are always open, always ready to receive the child who returns. But I can promise you this, when you live a life for Jesus, you will experience pushback from the world because you are a fish going against the stream. And as Malcolm Muggeridge said, only dead fish go with the stream, go with the current. He is with those who suffer. He is with those who hurt because of him. He is with us when our hearts break for others who are hurting. He is with us when our hearts are broken over sin. Because that's what we should be consistently asking Jesus. Lord, show me if there's anything in me unworthy of you. Just reveal it to me. And then come into the light and confess it. But it's hard because to come into the light is to be exposed. And we're often ashamed of the things that we keep in secret, that we keep in the dark. It's weird that we have such a hard time letting go. Blessed are the peacemakers. This is the peace of meekness. Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I like how Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, defined meekness. He says, Meekness is essentially a true view of oneself, expressing itself in an attitude and conduct with respect to others. The man, the woman who is truly meek is the one who is truly amazed that God and others can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. Have you ever had that thought? If people actually knew what was going on in my mind, nobody would be friends with me. But the meek person is not weakness. Meekness 
is never idleness. It's actually focused and hardworking. It's not mellowness. It's actually a quiet intensity. Meekness is not weakness. It's actually strong and fearless. It's not tolerance. There are those who think it is the avoidance of confrontation, but I promise you that's one of the most damaging things that we can do to one another is be unwilling to enter into the ways that we have been hurt or have hurt. I know I've paid dearly for a unwillingness to enter into conflict. No, meekness is the self-assured confidence, I know who I am in Christ. And I am going to be that person, not more than nor less than. I'm going to live into the one that I have been born again into. I'm going to embrace that person and its strength under control. It's not interested in what other people think. The meek wait on the Lord. The meek don't defend themselves against those who accuse them because they know They know who they belong to. That's what Paul said. He goes, I know in whom I believed and I am confident that he is able to keep that which has been committed to me. Paul was consistently dealing with planting churches, leaving the church, and then people coming in behind and then accusing Paul of all kinds of things, teaching different gospels, and then turning the people against him. And he had to consistently go back and defend his position in Christ. But there's this, it's not a pride or an arrogance, there's actually a humility in it because the meekness is revealed in his unwillingness to stop loving the people that have turned against him. It's the, the person that does not walk in humility, the person that walks in pride that is easily offended when their character is attacked. It's the proud person who has elevated themselves above others that is always running the risk of being dethroned and that's why it's so exhausting. It's why wealth is such a dangerous thing. It's not, it's not like there's money in, its, in and of itself is not evil, although the scripture gets pretty darn near to personifying it as a very key kind of idolatry because the more that we have, the more we have to protect what is ours. It's the great American heritage, is it not? And believe me, communism is not the answer. Communal living, because sin means that somebody will always take advantage of the system. There is no perfect governmental system. Sin means that capitalism will take advantage of the weak. Communism means that someone will rise up and become a dictator. It's, it's, all, it's all interrelated. I think it's so silly that we like, are consistently believing as Christians that anything other than mixture can come out of anything that human beings do. <laughs> we shouldn't be so idealistic. We should be super idealistic about the end of the story, but we have no idea how it's gonna play out from here to the end. That's why Jesus never said where he was going. He's just asking us, are we gonna follow him? Are we going to follow him? I watched a really funny comedy about the impossibility. I won't mention it because I get myself in trouble for mentioning things that I shouldn't. But it was a really funny comedy about the impossibility of what we just went through in COVID and the, and the, the two extreme sides. And this comedian played both sides so... One minute you're like, he's on my side. And then he's just like, knifes it. I think comedians might be the, the last honest human beings uh, in entertainment. And he said, he goes, on one side, you got the, the non-vaxxing, America first. And he's like, like, America, love it or leave it. And they're like, 
Are you going to get the vaccine? I don't trust the government. It's really funny. Then he goes, then you got the other side think they need to wear two masks and saran wrap their heads before they look at their family photo albums. And you're like, which side are you on? He's like, exactly. Because we're all crazy and we need help. And his solution is that we play Hunger Games. <laughs> it was pretty funny. I've, he said he would put the liberals in a helicopter with guns that could shoot the vaccine at non-vaxxers. He goes, but just in case you think that's unfair, no, the liberals are scared of guns and they don't know how to fire them. <laughs> I was like, dang, this guy is going for the throat. <laughs> Pastors need to take more cues from good comedians. I think it's one of the keys, one of the keys to meekness, and I mean this in all seriousness. It's the meek that inherit the earth. The only people that can enjoy the earth are the people that don't take it that seriously. I don't take any of it that seriously. You know what I take seriously? Jesus and grace. Do I believe in living uh, in a way that's unsafe? Uh, I believe in life, but I also know that the death rate's still one per person. And I also believe that it's, that it's, that it's very small-minded of us to become so hyper-focused on one issue that we miss a million other issues that are constantly actually killing us. So what I'm interested in is, I've got one life to live, I could go at any moment, I just wanna love Jesus and love people, and I refuse to play politics and pick camps because Jesus was never a part of any particular camp, he just came to do the will of the Father, period. And I think that that's what we're called to. The peace of the peacemaker, of the, of the meek, is this, is that they're peacemakers because they live in a place of humility. They're not, they're not hurt by what people think of them. They wait on the Lord. They're not, they're, they know who they are in Jesus and they know what they've been saved from and this is why they have grace when they deal with others. Because they know how bad it hurts to pull the log out of their own eyes. This is the beautiful aspect of meekness. And finally, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's the satisfaction of holy longing. It's hungering for happiness. Chesterton once stated in his book, What's Wrong with the World? He says, what's wrong with the world is that we do not ask what is right. I love that. What's wrong with the world is that we don't ask what's right. We cherish the wrong things and we don't take care of the things that actually should be cherished. We sacrifice relationships for our own egos and our careers. We sacrifice parenting because we're too busy making, making a future for ourselves. We sacrifice our spouses when we don't have time to enter into their lives because their interests don't align with ours. We sacrifice church and community and life together when it doesn't, doesn't work well into our busy schedules, busy schedules that often leave us emptier than they do more fulfilled. Before we know it, we're halfway through our lives and we're like, crap, it's all gone by so fast. I think that part of my unhealth last year was the recognition that much of my life is, it was being haunted by a past I couldn't change and a future I had no control over and all it did was rob me of the moment. But it's the meek that are able to live in the moment. And when we live in the moment, we can begin to hunger and thirst for the right things, which is to hunger and thirst for God. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is to be a person who recognizes 
that Jesus himself is our righteousness. Malcolm Muggridge discovered Jesus at the end of his life, and he said, what we seek so ardently proves in the end to be the opposite of what we hoped. Seeking fulfillment through our sensual appetites is not a satisfactory basis for living through a single day. Man, ouch. The problem with Christian life is that our desires are too weak, as Lewis said. And so we, we try to satisfy the holy longing that is to be one with God, which is in every person. They just may not know how to identify it as such. It says in Ecclesiastes, God has placed eternity upon the heart of man. But there's a mystery in it. And that, that longing is something that everyone chases after. This is why Mick Jagger wrote the iconic song, I still haven't found, or no, that's actually Bono. He says, I can't get no satisfaction. Bono, in you too, captures the same sentiment. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. It's, those are honest songs that are anthemic because they speak to the human condition, the desire for fulfillment, a desire for something that will actually satisfy the ache that I can't seem to get rid of. I like to refer to it, people that don't know, don't know God but are being drawn to church. I've seen this many times where people have come to church week after week and, and they come a long time before they, they surrender to Jesus but they can't not come because they're God-haunted. I sometimes think that non-believers are more God-haunted than God's own children. Maybe, you know, it's familiarity breeds contempt. It's like a child that refuses to listen to their parents and then their parent's friend says the same thing their parents have been saying to them and the child's like, oh my gosh, you wouldn't believe what so-and-so said to me and I'm like, I've totally said that to you. And like, oh, I don't remember you ever saying that. I've said it like actually every day for like 18 years, but it's cool. I'm not gonna be offended because I'm meek. <laughs> but there is something about that, right? Like there's like, I can't hear it from my dad or my mom. What is it about Christians that are kind of like that? It's like we get to the point where we're so familiar with Jesus, we believe that we're saved by grace. Our faith is there, but we just lose interest in following him. And we're so confident that he's going to save us no matter what. I know this, this is the libertine spirit that we kind of do what we want, but then we can't figure out why we're so miserable doing it. I'm like, at least before I was a Christian, sin was fun. Now I'm miserable doing it. The things that used to bring me joy are just bringing me misery and actually hiding God from my presence. And I think that this is the key, is understanding that the satisfaction for, you can't, you can't skip these beatitudes. It's gotta begin with the poverty of spirit. It needs to come to a place of brokenness. It needs to create in us a meekness, the recognition, I can't, I can't save myself and I'm okay with that. Jesus, I am yours. Which is then when we will begin to hunger and thirst for things we did not hunger and thirst for before, which is to know him to know him more. That's the satisfaction. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. All the things that we worry about every day, our food, our clothes, where we're gonna live, what we're gonna do, who we're gonna marry, all of these things, God cares about them, but he says, seek me first. Get your affections in the right order. And there we have it. So each one of these beatitudes come with a blessing. Those who mourn, the blessing is comfort. We become comforted and we become conduits of comfort. Those who are meek find peace on earth. 
They shall inherit the earth. Because the meek understands who they are apart from God, and they understand what they have in God, and therefore they live with the blessedness of possessing nothing, and yet having everything. I don't have to take myself or the world that seriously, because I take Jesus really seriously, and his gospel I take seriously, which means that my two primary concerns in existence is my God and my neighbor. If I actually took care of my God and my neighbor, all my concerns about myself would probably take care of themselves. And satisfaction. The hunger and thirst for righteousness says they shall be filled. We know this. We don't eat of the bread and drink of the cup once. We don't come to the well of living water and drink once. What Jesus is, is the source of satisfaction, but we must feed upon his word, upon his presence, and we must drink deeply from his well every day. The filling is that it's always available to us, but just because it's available doesn't mean people are satisfied because they actually aren't drinking. They aren't eating. You ever read that story by Kafka, the hunger artist? It says a man, a man gets into a cage and refuses to eat, and the town people walk by him, walk by him every day, and he just gets more and more emaciated, and it, it, he, he won't ever eat, and he's, it's a performance, and at the very end, he, they, they go and they notice that he's not in the cage. And so they, the townspeople open the cage and they go into the cage. And there he is, emaciated, shrunk down to almost non-existence, buried under the hay. And they asked him, they said, why did you do this? What was the point of this performance? And they said, why would you not eat? And he said, because nothing ever sounded good. And the hunger artist died. That's the joy of Kafka, every Kafka story. And then he's replaced with a mysterious white panther that walks back and forth in the cage. I don't know what that part means, but I do know what the other part means, which is that we often know in our heart that God is the source of satisfaction, but for some reason we just refuse to eat from it. We actually have convinced ourselves that it's not going to be as good as we thought it would be. So it's best to just feed on other things because it's too much work to get close to Jesus. It's too costly. We want bread with something on it. And Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. And we're like, that's not enough. I want a sandwich. I don't like plain bread. And so we dress it up with all kinds of things that bring some sort of temporary satisfaction, but that's not what Jesus offered. And this is why we're told to count the cost. He who wants to be a disciple must pick up the cross and follow him. You see, these beatitudes are about coming to him empty, coming to the cross and discovering his saving life now, today, in this moment. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your gospel. Thank you for the power that it brings into our lives, the ways that it transforms us. As we come to the table now, and we remember your body broken and your blood spilled. As we remember the perfect sacrifice as you hung from the cross and the words that you spoke defining exactly what you did. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
My God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus forsaken so that we could be found. A forgiving God. A God who cried out, it is finished. Which means that everything that needs to be done has already been done in him. And so we look to you, Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, and I pray that you would forgive us for the things that, the things that bring tears to our lives that is built upon us running away from you rather than weeping over the hurt that has come to us because of our commitment to you. Lord, how often we hurt for the wrong reasons. I pray that we would find the joy of your presence in the midst of the difficulty of life and that we would turn to you once again, the author and the finisher of our faith. As the tables are open, the worship begins, I pray that we would just look into our hearts and ask, Lord Jesus, what am I withholding from you? I want to know you. I want you to be Lord. I give you my whole person, the good and the bad, all of it. Do what you like with me. I pray that each one of us would pray that prayer in our hearts and declare these words, Jesus is Lord. Say that with me, church. Jesus is Lord. Amen. Hey, friends, this is Russ Lacey, one of the pastors here at Door of Hope Southeast. Thanks for listening to this teaching. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help our church as we seek to point people to Jesus and minister here in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your prayers and financial support. Just head over to dooroftheopedx.org and click Give from the menu bar. May God bless you.